You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. This week, we'll be looking at the implications of the unexpected election result in Turkey and discussing the ongoing crisis affecting its neighbour, Greece. At the weekend, Turkey's ruling AK party suffered its first electoral setback since its foundation in 2001, failing to secure an overall majority in that country's general election. The result is seen as a setback in particular for President Tayyip Erdogan, a co-founder of the AK party, who has been seeking to boost the powers of his office and introduce a presidential system of government. I'm joined from Istanbul by our correspondent Stephen Starr and here in studio by the Irish Times foreign affairs correspondent Ruan McCormack. Stephen, first to you, can you give us a quick recap on the election result at the weekend and explain why the AK party's failure to secure an overall majority is so significant in terms of uh, Erdogan's ambition to change the way Turkey is governed? Yeah, so the, uh, the initial uh, ambition at least for the AK party was to uh, win at least 330 seats in the, in, in the parliament. What they ended up getting uh, was 258 seats, which uh, in fact meant that they didn't even succeed in, in, get, in gaining a, mono- a majority in parliament. Now, they needed a 330 seat uh, figure in order to put a referendum to the people a referendum uh, about uh, changing Turkey's constitution to allow a presidential system uh, to be put in place instead of the current parliamentary system. Uh, So you could say it was a double whammy uh, for the AK party itself and for uh, President uh, Tayyip Erdogan. Now, Tayyip Erdogan, since he took over the presidency last August, is no longer a member of the AK party, but of course he is its... uh, its, its, voice and, and faith uh, during the election and, and even before the election campaign started out. Um, so, in a sense, uh, it's a, it, this is, as you, as you mentioned in your, in your, in your introduction, uh, this is a, a major, this is the first major problem that the AK party has faced in its 13 years of, of rule in Turkey. And of course, it's still, the, it's still the, by far the largest party in, uh, in Parliament, but now it's faced with uh, this new issue being that it has to deal with other political parties, uh, other political parties that do not seem very much interested in, in forming a coalition with it. They've set out their stalls saying that they're not, uh, some of them have said they're not willing to work with uh, the AK party at all. Others have said they will do so perhaps under certain conditions. Um, the, the president has to give a mandate to the prime minister, the, the prime minister is a member of the AK party. Uh, he has 45 days from when the mandate is, is given to him from the president to try and form a coalition government. Uh, it's still early, obviously, but it looks very different, uh, very difficult to see the AK party forming a, a coalition. And Stephen, I know it's a little early to maybe make definitive assessments, but is this a, um, a would you regard it as a definitive reverse for Erdogan and, and his party or his former party uh, um um, are, are, will they accept this result and accept its implications or do you think they're going to try other ways to get his programme back on track? Yeah, I think a lot of people, there's a couple of different issues at, at hand, I think. A lot of people were fed up with this, with a very nasty campaign ran by the AK party in particular. They targeted a lot of minorities uh, across the various strata of Turkish society. They singled out this new... Uh, uh, HDP, a Kurdish-rooted party, uh, for a lot of uh, negative uh, press. And I think 
for, for the most part, speaking to people here, the, the sense is that a lot of regular Turks were, were fed up with this uh, negative campaigning. Now, in, 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 uh, on the opposite side, the HDP and also the, the, uh, the, uh, the main opposition party, the CHP, uh, refrained from this negative campaigning, and call it dirty politics, I suppose, in the lead-up and during the, the election campaign. I think people uh, saw that, and it resonated, I think, with, with quite a lot of people that, you know, this is, we were sick and tired, of, basically, of this, uh, this negative campaigning. Uh, going forward, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. So you have four parties in Parliament right now, as I said, by far the largest is the AKP, uh, there's the, also the, the largest opposition party, the CHP. You've got the MHP, which is a far-right party that opposes uh, the, the ongoing and stalled uh, peace process with the PKK, the Turkish, uh, the, the Kurdish uh, militant group that's been fighting a war against the Turkish state in southeast Turkey for the best part of the last 35 uh, years or so. Uh, the, the fourth party on 80 seats now, of course, is, is the HDP. Uh, it has said right from the off during the election campaign and until now that it will not go into the coalition with the AKP. So it, it looks like the AK party will be faced with, with two choices in terms of trying to form a coalition government. Uh, the first is the largest opposition party, the CHP. Uh, that has not said if or if not it would, if it would like to form a, a coalition with, with the AKP. Uh, the second is the far-right MHP. Uh, its leader came out in the immediate aftermath of the election on Sunday to say it would not form a, a coalition uh, with the AKP. But again, we need, to be, we need to be kind of careful here because oftentimes what uh, political leaders say and what they're going to do uh, are not the same thing. Uh, looking forward, it's, as, as I say, it's either uh, potentially a coalition government. Uh, the AK party itself has uh, 45 days with which to form that or at least attempt, attempt to form that. So the other option is the, the possibility of snap elections, which would be held around October or maybe beforehand. Uh, this is something that the majority of parties and people in general, I think, don't want to happen. There's a, there's a push on behind the scenes at the moment among the political parties. Uh, to try and form a coalition. A lot of uh, people, former politicians, former statesmen here in Turkey are trying, are getting out at least and, and making their point in public, uh, trying to push each party uh, to, to try and form a coalition government here. Okay. Um, Stephen, if you stay on the line, I'll come back to you in a moment about other aspects of the election and their, and their significance. But I want to bring Rowan McCormick in here, our foreign affairs correspondent. Um, Rowan, this is a, it's an election that has been watched, obviously, not just within Turkey, but throughout the world. Ha- has there been much in the way of international reaction? There has. I think the clearest short-term consequence here is uncertainty. We're into a period of uncertainty that will probably last for a few weeks, at least, as, as Stephen was, was saying. Um, and in a sense, we're in uncharted waters in that it's the first time since Erdogan set up the AKP in 2001 that he's been faced with a situation where he has an inconclusive election result and that the AKP hasn't been returned as the majority party. Um, now, we know that markets don't like uncertainty, and so the Turkish stock was down 8% on Monday, so was the Turkish lira. But politicians don't like uncertainty either. And I think um, Turkey's neighbours, 
in Europe, in the West in general, but also in the Middle East, where Turkey has been sort of imposing itself as a regional power in the last few years, I think they'll be watching very closely. And in many ways, they'll be adopting the same posture we're all adopting, which is they'll be waiting and, and w- waiting to see what sort of coalition, if any, emerges, and then what sort of character that, that coalition will have. Um, I think the big question for the West in particular is what does Erdogan do now? Um, the election result is understandably being portrayed as a setback, as a loss for Erdogan. But it's inescapable, I think, that Erdogan will remain the dominant figure in Turkish politics for the coming years. Uh, he is the president. He can stand for the presidency again in 2019. That would leave him in office till 2024. He would preside over the centenary of the establishment of the modern Turkish state. That's in 2023. Um, and so there are open questions about Erdogan and what, what he does from here on in. Um, will he resile from this ambition Stephen referred to uh, to create an executive presidency? That's gotten an awful lot harder for him now. Um, will it temper Erdogan's brand of sort of religious coated nationalism, uh, which has been a feature of, of his rule for the last uh, five to ten years? Um, and within the AKP, will it will it prompt some sort of soul searching? Uh, in order to find an accommodation with potential um, coalition partners. Um, when the AKP was set up in 2001, in, in the years thereafter, uh, it, it colonized the, the center ground of, of Turkish politics. And then progressively, it it got to the position it's, it's at now, where you've got um, religious conservatives in the ascendancy and the sort of center-right politicians within the AKP uh, somewhat somewhat marginalized. So I think it is being watched very closely. It's what, being watched very closely because uh, Turkey finds itself in a pivotal position. Uh, it's a big economy. Um, as I say, it's been attempting to position itself as a, a regional power in the Middle East, but it's also a bridge between Europe and Syria and Iran and Iraq. Um, and th- there have been strains in the relationship between the EU and the West generally uh, and Turkey particularly over what's been going on in Syria. There's been a sense, I think, for a number of years that um, Erdogan has been turning a blind eye to the passage of militants through Turkey into Syria, um, possibly on on the basis that what's bad for the Kurds, the Kurds in Syria and the Kurds in general, is good for for Erdogan. Um, The uh, coalition fighting against uh, Islamic State would like to be able to use uh, Turkish uh, air bases as a sort of a launching pad for uh, bombing runs in Syria. Um, but there, there are wider tensions behind that to do with the deteriorating human rights situation in Turkey over the last number of years and the sort of uh, the, the, the waning of enthusiasm for talks on uh, negotiations on EU membership for Turkey. Um, so I think there are some of the questions that are in the mix. I think the ideal scenario for the West now is that Turkey is forced into to a more a less hostile uh, approach to its relations with the West, um, uh, that it would tone down it, that sort of hostile rhetoric it's been that Erdogan in particular has been coming out with, with uh, for a number of years, um, that it takes a more conciliatory approach to the Kurds, uh, and that they can fashion some sort of a, a, an improved cooperative relationship in dealing with the problems in Syria. Now you mentioned there in passing around the um, EU membership negotiations and. When these um, negotiations formally started back in 2005, there was, at one point, a lot of optimism around that Turkey was on a fairly fast, maybe, path to EU membership. That, of course, has dissipated in recent years, and particularly um, uh, Erdogan's, I suppose, his autocratic style has has alienated him from European Union leaders. Do you think this uh, outcome of the election may prove to be a spur to get that 
uh, process back on track? Very well. I think EU leaders will be encouraged by the somewhat conciliatory remarks that Erdogan has made since the election, which contrast with the strident, more bellicose um, rhetoric he came out with during the campaign, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, as Stephen said, he no longer runs the AKP. Um, I think what you've seen in the last couple of days is a tentative welcoming of the result by EU leaders. Uh, Federica Mogherini, the EU foreign affairs chief, said that it was a positive sign. um, And she said that it could uh, bring about an opportunity for an improvement of relations and cooperation between the EU and Turkey. And I think that's code for if you move closer to our positions on key issues, including human rights in Syria, then there may be room to restart those negotiations on EU uh, EU membership. Um, there, there are several reasons, I think, why um, those negotiations, meaningful negotiations on EU membership have stalled. I think there was a waning of enthusiasm um, for the enlargement project in general within the EU over the last number of years. Um, but also it was difficult while, um, while human rights were deteriorating as they were in the last few years in Turkey, uh, as minorities were feeling that chill over the last few years, I think it was difficult to engage meaning, meaningfully um, with Turkey over the last number of years. So I think uh, it could change the atmosphere somewhat. Um, I think it's probably too early to talk about a resumption of serious meaningful negotiations on membership. But even if you had a, an improvement in the relations between the EU and, and Turkey, you could have um, an awful lot of progress on some really important issues such as migration, um, terrorism, and of course the biggest of all, which is Syria. Um, of course, you, you were in Turkey recently yourself for the for the visit there of um, the Irish President Michael D. Higgins. What was your own sense of the place when you were there? Did, did you get a sense of a country that was turning its back on Western values or not? Or a sense of the divisiveness that I know Stephen has sometimes uh, written about him in the Irish Times. Yeah, I was there when Michael D. Higgins was there for the uh, centenary of the Gallipoli landings and it coincided, of course, with the um, 100th anniversary of the Armenian genocide as well. So I, I, in a way I saw it Two, I had two perspectives on, on, on Turkey. I was in Istanbul, which is a relatively cosmopolitan and liberal place. But I, I did attend a, a speech that Erdogan gave in uh, this huge cavernous conference hall one day. Um, it was ostensibly on the Gallipoli landings and the centenary, but um, the hall was packed with the most fervent Erdogan supporters, hundreds, maybe thousands of them. And you really got a sense, speaking to people there, of the the fervour and the, the the devotion that he could inspire in people. Um, and um, I, I suppose that, that shouldn't be lost, that the AKP, while it has suffered a setback, uh, remains by far the biggest um, party in Turkish politics, and Erdogan will remain uh, the dominant figure in the years ahead. But th- there was also a second perspective I, I picked up a lot in Turkey, which was, I suppose, the perspective you got from speaking to young people in particular who'd taken part in the Gezi Park protests in 2012. And not only people who took part, but people who were appalled by the ferocity of the crackdown against the Gezi Park protesters uh, in 2012. And this was the incident in which um, a proposal to build a shopping centre in the middle of Taksim Square on some and some green space in Taksim Square was was opposed, and, and the protesters were, were put down um, um, quite fiercely. So um, I think for many people in Turkey, um, Gezi Park stood for a lot more. It stood not only for that, the battle against the shopping centre, but uh, it stood for that 
that confrontation, that 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 resistance to the chill I was referring to towards minorities and human rights organisations and journalists that all these groups have felt over the last number of years. Um, and in a sense, I mean, the, the pro-Kurdish alliance that did very well this week, um, its success was rooted in its ability to get votes not just from Kurds, but from liberals and young people and various other parts of, so, of Turkish society. And in that sense, I suppose, um, the result on Sunday uh, is a victory for the Turkey of Gezi Park. Um, Stephen, um, uh, could I come back to you as well on that kind of larger question? Um, uh, you're obviously, you're, you, you live in Istanbul, you've been observing um, the Turkish scene at close quarters for for some time now. Um, for some time it's been apparent that the more, um, I suppose, the, the Islamist uh, supporters, maybe more conservative supporters of Erdogan and his party have had the upper hand. Does the result suggest that there's been a significant shift and that those of a more secular, maybe dare one say progressive outlook, um, have sort of got uh, power back in their hands again? Or is it too early to make those kind of sweeping judgments? I think it's a bit early, uh, to be honest, at this stage. And very pointedly, uh, one of the leaders of the HDP, the Kurdish rooted party, in the immediate aftermath of the election, when it became clear that they would reach the uh, 10% parliamentary threshold, uh, he immediately said that we understand and we appreciate that we are here in Parliament uh, on borrowed votes. And also the fact that there was a bombing at the HDP rally in Diyarbakir, uh, the largest Kurdish city in southeast eastern Turkey, last Friday. Uh, I think that pushed a lot of conservative, conservative Kurds, uh, both in southeast Turkey and in the major cosmopolitan uh, cities such as Istanbul and Ankara and Izmir, pushed them away from the AK party uh, based on the fact that the AK party had been hammering away at the HDP for the last number of weeks and that this bombing, a lot of people perhaps put two and two together. Uh, Turkey is a very, very divided country, and I think we, we need to uh, make the point that uh, there is still a lot of support for the AK party here. Also, the fact that there were over a million new voters uh, taking part in Sunday's election, and the previous election in, in, in 2011 was over a million voters also. And Turkey has a very uneasy relationship with coalition governments. Uh, during the 1990s, with very little economic progress or very little uh, political progress made because the parties in coalition could not get the, their, their acts together to put forward uh, law, new laws. Uh, and I guess the point is that a lot of these new, these first and second time voters uh, were not around uh, when uh, uh, coalition governments were, were, were ruling Turkey during the 1990s. It took uh, the rise of the establishment of the AK party uh, to put Turkey forward in terms of its economic growth and in terms of building various infrastructure projects around the country. Uh, the UK Party's campaign, its core campaign, uh, too, is to portray itself as the builder of a new Turkey, of new uh, highways, motorways, infrastructure projects, better housing that are now uh, capable of withstanding earthquakes. Of course, there was a devastating earthquake outside Istanbul in uh, 1999. These are all points going forward uh, for the AK party that it will put forward in terms of, of why people vote for it. Uh, and I say, as I say, this, this, the new and young uh, cosmopolitan voters have no sense of how uh, unstable Turkish politics was during the 1990s when uh, coalition parties were in government. 
And finally, uh, Stephen, given that um, difficult relationship that Turkey has with uh, coalition governments and the very sharp divisions between the AK party and its rivals or potential coalition partners, is it inevitable that we're looking at another election in Turkey in the near future? It's possible. It's very, very difficult to say. Uh, very few people want to go through the another uh, election again. It's going to... Uh, people are sick and tired of seeing, honestly, seeing the, the advertisements in newspapers and just the, the nasty comments and rhetoric coming from, in particular, the AK party. Uh, but I would say that the AK party would prefer to see that happen. And as I say, they have a record. Uh, they would obviously put forward a point that, you know, the choice is between us and a coalition uh, government. You've seen what how badly coalition governments have worked in the past, and things didn't turn right for Turkey until we, we took command, essentially, uh, of, of the government. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the smaller parties, uh, they have no record, in a sense, to, 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 to put two voters should another snap election happen. Uh, but the, the, the fact that there's only 45 days or so from the point that the president gives the mandate to the prime minister to try and establish a coalition uh, means that the talks are very much ticking and that the other three uh, uh, parties now in parliament really have to get their acting gear and decide where they want to align uh, with or against the AK party. Uh, as I say, obviously, the, the HDP has repeated that it would not go uh, into government with the AK party. There's a very tiny chance that the three opposition parties, now the three the smallest uh, parties in, in parliament, could align and try and uh, form a minority government uh, themselves. OK, well, no doubt we'll be returning to this topic again in the near future. But for now, Stephen Starr in Istanbul and Ruan McCormack, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now Greece, which is running out of time in its negotiations with its EU partners and the International Monetary Fund on the release of €7.2 billion Euro in much-needed bailout aid to Athens. Tomorrow, Wednesday, the Greek Prime Minister, Alexis Tsipras, will hold what may be crucial talks on the matter in Brussels with the German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the French President François Hollande during the EU summit with Latin American leaders. Greece was one of the big topics of discussion at the two-day summit of the leaders of the world's most powerful economies, the G7, in Bavaria that ended on Monday. Derek Scally, our Berlin correspondent, was there for the Irish Times and joins me now. Derek, if one thing was clear at the summit, I think it is that Mr. Tsipras is rapidly running out of friends on the international stage. Even Barack Obama felt it necessary to deliver a, a little lecture to the Greek people, telling them it was time for them to make some tough decisions. Why do you think the US president felt it necessary to enter what many might see as essentially a European debate? Well, two reasons. Number one, um, the international, the non-EU members of the G7 made clear to the EU members uh, meeting in Bavaria that they're really worried that some accident will happen and that a Greek uh, accidental exit from the euro would cause new turbulence. It could be a new Lehman Brothers. And then there's a simple practical reason that the US, like everyone else at that table, are uh, our shareholders in the IMF, and the IMF is one of uh, one of the creditors of Greece. And uh, the IMF European staff have told me last week at a G7 finance ministers meeting, they're really feeling the heat at, at board meetings in Washington. They said it's just not credible for us to keep saying we need more time, we need more time for Greece. They said we don't need more time, we need a solution. And that's really what uh, leaders will be talking about tomorrow in, in Brussels. Right. Now, just to recap on the, uh, go back a couple of days, this kind of seemingly never-ending crisis, it went up a notch last Friday when Mr. Tsipras told the, the Greek parliament that the reforms being sought by the country's creditors were, were absurd. And uh, that didn't go down too well, I think, with the powers that be in Brussels and, and Berlin. Are, are they running out of patience with Greece, do you think? 
Um, well, I think they've, uh, they've shown ever-increasing amounts of patience, the more frustrating it becomes. But definitely the feeling from G7 is this is turning into a farce. Um, Angela Merkel, who has usually always been, um, at least in public, saying we're, we have great patience in Greece, she said Greece is running out of time, and she definitely put the ball in Greece's court. At the same time, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, the finance minister, was in Berlin. He met his German uh, counterpart. He also gave a speech in the evening, and he said, we really need to stop pointing fingers and come to an agreement and he said Angela Merkel needs to give a speech of hope. But at the same time, he um, he also gave a newspaper interview, uh, which was the exact opposite of conciliatory. In one of the Berlin papers today, he said that offer they made was last week. That's the only, You only make that type of offer if you don't want the other side to agree. So Greece seems to be playing, a, a, at least from a, from a German perspective, a very much a double game. They're talking nice in public, and then they're sticking the knife in at the same time. I think the Greeks would probably say that their creditors are doing the same. So the question is really, is there a goodwill for an agreement? Is there a basis for an agreement? And um, that's really what we seem to be discussing now. There were some reports uh, that the creditors may be uh, willing to extend um, the the program to Greece until uh, 2016, and they may have found some extra money to tie Greece over to make payments in the next couple of months um, from its bank recapitalization fund. But this all seems to be sticking plaster solutions, and that actually the political will and the trust for an agreement just seems to be uh, diminishing day by day. And that's what has the G7 leaders, the non-EU G7 leaders, really worried and, and really putting pressure on Hollande and Merkel to say, look, what, what do you want to do? And, and in his statement, in his remarks yesterday, Mr. President Obama was very, he, he definitely put Greece first and he said, look, you need to get serious and these reforms that are being asked of you will be good for you in the long run too and return your economy to prosperity. But he also said that he wanted to see flexibility from from uh, from Greece's creditors from from the EU side, and that's really the line we're getting from Washington, and that's the feeling that uh, the pressure that's being put on the IMF, and uh, and then in turn on on the European Central Bank and the European Commission. So there seems to be ex- external pressure and impatience to, of. Uh, non-EU countries towards the EU, and that in turn is trickling down onto Greece. So that's where the pressure is. Um, but at the sense that uh, there was a very pessimistic feeling around the G7 meeting that a country that isn't even in the G7, that isn't even at the meeting, was casting such a, a large shadow over, over events. And you mentioned there, Derek, that Angela Merkel said we're running out of time. It, it seems um, like we've been here um, so often before, but it, are we, notwithstanding this new talk of a possible extension until next year, are we actually at the end game now? Are we coming to the point where we'll either have a durable agreement or we may be looking at a Greek exit from the euro? I think if everyone who said we were at the last stage at the last act, if they had had to pay a euro for getting it wrong, Greece would be out of the woods by now. So I won't be making any speculation. But um, I think uh, you really shouldn't underestimate, all, for all their tough talking in Germany and so on, I think Greece, the Greeks have recognized that Germany really does not want to be seen to be the country that um, pulled the plug on Greece and that uh, started this uh, this feeling that it's sort of like Mikado that they pulled out one one stick and and the the eurozone as a whole would start to question would start to wobble and then the, the markets would start wondering what country will be next. So I don't think Angela Merkel wants to be responsible for a European Lehman Brothers. And um, there have been reports here that she's really gone out of her way to try and at least uh, get a sort of a, a, a productive atmosphere with um, Alexis Tsipras. How true that is, it's, it's really hard to gauge. This is really high stakes. 
high stakes brinksmanship. But um, if they don't come out with something from tomorrow and, and something actually, we've, we've been at, at the aspirational level several times before. Um, there's been signals coming out of Greece today that maybe they're ready for a deal. But um, if the finance minister is anything to go by, he says on the one hand, uh, we're, we must do a deal and stop pointing fingers. And on the other hand, he starts pointing fingers again. Um, you do wonder, uh, are they even on the same planet? And what, Derek, are the outstanding sticking points at this point? Is, is it is it uh, mainly about pensions um, and uh, pension reform or other, is it broader than that? No, it, it, I think they're just looking for a signal at this stage, a binding signal. And um, the pension reform is definitely something that the IMF has been pushing for for a long time. There's some question about whether um, this would bring in sustainable savings to bring the, the, the Greek budget onto an even keel. But uh, the IMF have said many times that really the public pensions, this isn't about sort of taking money out of the pocket of retired cleaning ladies. This is about the Greek public servants who are earning pensions, uh, who are in receipt of pensions every month, which are really quite similar to uh, German pensions. And, and they also get them seven years earlier. And uh, they have expressed some surprise that a, 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 a hard left grouping like Syriza, um, uh that came into power uh, supposedly representing the underdog that seems to be quite determined to protect the same vested interests that the, uh, the other parties that preceded it did. And that seems to be the frustration there. Why are they interested in protecting this and protecting so many things uh, and claiming that they're acting on the small man when actually they, there's a feeling in the IMF and the European Commission that they could scoop some off the top uh, without hurting uh, hurting the man on the street, but again, this is a this is a he said she said debate. There's, there's arguments for and against that. I think uh, Germany and all the EU are looking for something politically credible, but will actually be seen followed through on. And uh, I think that's what the US has been arguing for as well. We want to we want a global agreement, and we want it uh, on paper binding, and then we can work out the small print later. But there's a feeling we've been there before as well. So at this stage, um, I think anything would be would be good at this stage, and um, that's what we'll be looking for tomorrow at the EU Latin America summit. Okay, Derek. Well, we'll be watching this space tomorrow and see, to see what happens. And uh, um, thanks very much for that analysis. That's it from this week's Worldview. Dennis Staunton will be back here next week. But for now, for me, Chris Dooley, producer Declan Conlon and sound engineer Gary White, thank you for listening and goodbye.